Hey coders, welcome to another episode of the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior developer job. When you think about your first junior developer job, it's probably not uncommon to imagine contributing to production level applications. But there are many other types of jobs you can get as a developer, including technical support, testing, and even developer relations. My guest today is Phil Legater, who was previously a director of developer relations at a company named Vonage, which is a multinational public company that offers communication APIs, such as an API to send text messages. Phil believes the demand for talented developer relations people has never been greater. There are lots of developer relations roles available at the minute. Lots and lots and lots. The demand has never been bigger, but there aren't enough candidates right now. So I think it actually the problem at the moment is a bit more reversed. So, you know, to listeners who are in software development and have thought about or even haven't thought about developer relations, but are now aware of it, it's a genuine opportunity. If you're interested in either variety or you like, you know, learning new things, creating new things and sharing and enabling others and supporting communities or a subsection of those, there are lots of roles in DevRel there. If you're not too familiar about what developer relations is, well, this is the episode for you. Phil will teach you about developer relations and the roles that exist within that umbrella, such as developer educator or developer advocates. I also asked Phil about his experience having hired many developers as a huge company like Vonage, where I expected there would be quite rigorous HR processes. I really wanted to get an impression of what that was like from the inside to help you, the listener, navigate your job search. Nowadays, Phil is the head of developer relations at another company named PostHog, which is an earlier stage company. It was very interesting to hear both how enterprise companies and startups hire and their differences. Let's get into it. So Phil, welcome to the Scrimba podcast. It's so good to have you. Thanks, Alex. Really appreciate you inviting me and I'm looking forward to this. Me too, man, because I actually started my career as a junior developer advocate. So I'm quite excited to dive in a little bit and see what we can kind of share and explain to people listening to see if it's a career path they might be interested in. Perhaps a good way to kick things off is just by asking simply, what is developer relations and what do you like about it? It's the question that every developer advocate is asked. And it can vary quite widely, quite broadly. You know, roles within developer relations are quite broad. For me, that's one of the reasons why I find it so interesting. But my generalization of it is it sits at the intersection of product, which is for me is definition of what a product should be, what a developer-focused product should be, engineering, which is the you know execution of actually building it, and marketing, which for some people, certainly developers is is a can be thought of as a negative word, but it, um, it's about how you approach that marketing side of it. So I think maybe substituting marketing, if people don't like that word, with education really sums it up. So we can say product, engineering, and education. I like that definition a lot. Perhaps it's worth going one layer above because presumably developer relations doesn't apply to every product on the planet, right? It's probably very specific companies and very specific products which benefit from developer advocates. Absolutely, yes. A really important point, obviously, is that the reason developer relations exists is that initially, anyway, the feeling was that it was very difficult to reach developers and developers were a key user of many products. Certainly anything that is an API, an SDK, software development kit, anything where, as I mentioned, the end user is a developer. They might not be the decision maker in terms of 
the people that hold the purse strings and, and purchase a product, but they're certainly a user. Now that's actually changing. You know, developers are, are introducing products into organizations more and more now. But that was it's a really important point that you're only really going to see developer relations at companies where a developer is a user of that product. There's someone called uh, Carolyn Luco and James Parton, who are, I hope you don't mind me pitching. Of course not, go for it. They're writing a book on developer relations at the minute, uh, devrelbook.com, I think is the domain. And one of the things that they've defined is this idea of, I mean, they, they don't talk about this, but there obviously is types of products that have no developer users. But then there are two phrases that they're using. They're using developer first, which is a product which is primarily an API. So Twilio as, is the go-to example, right? The products are APIs. They have things like Flex, which moves a little bit more towards kind of ops and configuration, but it's still ultimately developer that you know uses that product. Stripe is another really good example and well-known example of a developer-first product. The second type is developer plus is the phrase that they're using. And what that means is that there is normally it's a SaaS. There's an application of some sort, so Slack, being a good example, but then you can extend the functionality of the application through APIs and through those integrations. So no developer at all, probably no DevRel. Developer first, you can definitely say that developer relations will be a fundamental function or set of roles within that organization. And developer plus, depending on how important that extensibility is, then you'll see, see some DevRel roles within those types of companies. When you talk about these developer-first companies, I think Scrimba users might recognize platforms like Netlify, where they host websites. And then the developer plus definition, yeah, your imagination can really run wild because you think of platforms like Discord, where they have an API to build chatbots. Yeah, I love these definitions and I think they're very good high-level overviews. Perhaps for the more tactile among us, could we talk a little bit about what are some specific examples of activities for developer advocates do on a day-to-day -day basis? There's developer relations, which seems to be the umbrella term, right? I think we'll, we'll agree on that. And then within there at the minute, I'll actually share a link with you uh, and you can put them in the podcast notes around um, some research I did into the most popular roles. So I searched on Google, so it's not, <laughs> and I searched on LinkedIn and I searched on DevRel Jobs, which is uh, run by Mary uh, Thankville. So there's all these different sources. So obviously, developer relations, a top level term, is very popular. Next, as you're alluding to, you know, developer advocate is the most common role or job title you will, you will see within DevRel. The next one, which actually, you know, I, I said that developer relations sits at the intersection of product engineering and marketing slash education. There is a role community manager. Now, whether that person gets hands-on with code, a community manager role within the operations team, it may be more about managing the community, as the job would say. That's the third. So developer community manager is the third most popular job title. I've got to be honest, it's, you know, I probably would hire a developer advocate as a generalist. But then as soon as you start to build community, I think there's lots and lots of value in hiring a community manager so it would be my you know second or third kind of hire and then we're starting to see specializations of the developer advocate so you know a developer advocate might give presentations might write documentation create sample code build sdks engage with the community arrange sponsorship with events you know that full gambit of product all the way through to marketing but then we're starting to see those specializations as i mentioned for, for developer educator which is normally focused on content creation 
Twilio were the first, I think, to have developer educators. I believe the developer education team is responsible for Twilio Quest. So there's definitely engineering work there, but there's also, you know, product definition and it's content that, you know, that they're creating. I've hired, you know, developer educators with a focus on written and video content. So content creation, um, that's really important. And then we're starting to see the role that most people would probably have been aware of previously of developer evangelist disappearing more and more. People are still using that occasionally. For me, I believe there's a little bit of a religious connotation to it to some people. So I, I would avoid it for that. And then we're seeing more specializations like developer relations engineer, developer experience engineer. Developer experience engineer is more obvious to me that it's focused on you know SDKs, probably some documentation work, sample code, integrations, extensibility. Developer relations engineer, I don't know, it, maybe it just clarifies that it's an engineer that works in DevRel. But I've seen that, I think, at Google. I know that New Relic used that. And there probably are some other different ways of using all these different terms. So then through to the activities, you know, I should map those with the activities. So developer advocate, they'll do talks, they'll do written content, they'll do documentation, SDKs. You know, the, the standard definition is like, you know, a conduit between the company and the community, a two-way communication channel. That, that's the role of the developer advocate. But it's definitely a more generic role. The community manager, as I mentioned, you know, managing communities, events management would probably come in there, creating programs like your champions program and, and so on. Educator focusing on blog posts, probably video content, you know, Twitch streams, things like that. Evangelist, again, probably a bit more of a, another word for advocate, but a bit more focused on events, content creation that's going to acquire you know new users to a platform. And then developer experience engineer, as I mentioned through to like you know SDKs, more that DevX, hands-on code, thinking about the experience of users on the platform or on the open source project. If you are enjoying this episode of the Scrimba podcast, please do us a favor and share it with your friends on social media. Word of mouth is the single best way to support a podcast that you like, so thanks in advance. Next week, I'm joined by Ali Spitzel, who frequently blogs about the things she wish she knew when learning to code. Her and I are going to chat about the science behind remembering what you learn as a new programmer, as well as her best advice for juniors. I think especially when you're starting out, there's this temptation to learn it all. If you instead focus on building up depth first, the ideas of a loop or a function or object-oriented programming, all these things transfer no matter what you end up doing. That's next week on the Scrimba podcast, so make sure you subscribe so that you see it in your feed and also support the show. Back to the episode with Phil. Uh, yeah, I completely agree that technical or developer evangelist gives an image of knocking on doors and saying, hey, have you tried our API, um, which might not sit well with everybody. I'm wondering what kind of personality is conducive to being a good person to work in developer relations? Because up until now, I've always felt like it's quite an extroverted role. That's the knocking on doors thing I just described or going to events. But I can also see being a developer advocate or a developer educator as being something which, of course, you collaborate with your team, but you spend a lot of time thinking about how to create code samples that help users, i.e. developers, be successful with the product. I've got to be honest, when I got into developer relations in 2011, officially, it was the speaking, it was the the hustle, like was the phrase that was used back, back then, you know, hustle. I didn't like that side of it. I didn't like the thought of doing that. I 
do see the value of it because, you know, when you hustle, you create connections, you're searching for opportunities. And I think that's really good. It's a bit like, you know, marketing versus education. It's about how you do it, not what you're doing. I mean, I think you're totally right. To do those things, you've got to be a bit extroverted or know you're introverted, but be able to step out. And for those moments, you know, give that presentation, walk into that crowd of people and say hi. And I would say I'm a bit more of an introvert, if I'm honest, but I just knew that I wanted to do this role. So that's how I ended up taking on those those pieces of responsibility. But you're right, when you're not doing the talks, I mean, you know, I guess even being on social platforms, even sometimes writing certain types of content, you're putting yourself out there and you'll be an extrovert. When it's more about education, where it's more about helping others, when it's about building a platform or creating sample code or SDKs, you definitely don't need to be an extrovert. The main fundamental kind of thread in developer relations is about relations. Yes, you've got to build relations, but how strong those relationships are with each individual doesn't need to be massive. It's just you need to care about your community, about your users, and try and put yourself in their shoes. So empathy was always the first kind of criteria I would list on any job spec. I think that's important in many, many walks of life anyway, but certainly within DevRel, that would be one of them, that extrovert nature. That's only really required when you're to be the face of a company or to represent a company. You know, I think it's important that you want to be out there integrating and, and building relationships, but it's not as required as I think it probably once was when it, everybody was just a developer advocate or a developer evangelist. When you're through to that developer educator or the developer experience engineer, you don't need to be out in the community quite as much, but you do need to care and to be willing to interact. How much and what kind of experience does someone need to work in developer relations? At Nexmo, the first few hires that we made, in fact, many of the hires that we made were not from people that had had experience working in developer relations directly, or certainly they didn't have developer advocate or developer evangelist on their CV, on their LinkedIn profile. What we looked for was somebody that, that cared and demonstrated that care for communities, obviously technical communities, through at least being involved, identifying that they are part of those communities. Certainly at the early stage, we were looking for kind of, you know, leaders within communities. And that doesn't mean they lead by being the loudest. They lead through supporting those communities and, and helping organize and occasionally giving talks. And this is obviously more for that developer advocate type role that I'm talking about. I mean, maybe developer educator in there as well, or even developer experience engineer, they might give the occasional talks. But it was more about that demonstration of willingness and want to be part of these communities and support them not that they would have had already experience in DevRel. Because I, I often said to, to people that I'd hire, you're already a developer advocate. You just don't have the job title yet. Because the work that you're doing in those communities, you know, someone may be a software engineer or a software developer organization, but if they're already contributing towards open source, they're already helping other people contribute, they're already dealing with pull requests publicly or even internally, to be honest with you, as long as, you know, it's, it's about how they do it and why they do it. It's not about the job title that they've got. If you want to be a doctor and say, <laughs> like, oh, I'm sorry, I've just practiced at home, you're not going to get very far. But when you're a developer, you can actually start doing the work and demonstrate that publicly. I think in the case of developer relations, getting involved on GitHub and creating content, all these things, there's certainly things you can start doing and highlight as essentially you already doing the job just without the official title. Yeah, ideally somebody 
is able to work in the public. As you say, you know, ideally they can contribute to open source repos. They can create their own open source repos, release their own packages, do some of their own blogging. There are obviously time constraints and things within certain companies that won't let you do that. So, you know, what we always, always try to look for and what I continue to try and look for in CVs is just a demonstration of obviously the technologies that they're using, but then how they kind of word, how they work with other people. You know, I always look for things like collaboration or trying to take initiative. I think you just touched on something very interesting, which is that you don't see it as like a one size fits all type of successful application. And you kind of acknowledge that some people will have time to make a bunch of open source contributions and write blog posts, but there are probably, I'm assuming this is how you think about it. There are probably some great candidates who just haven't had the time to do that. And if you turned away any resume that didn't have a bunch of projects on it, you might miss out on some really good candidates. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot easier if there's a talk or if there is a blog post or if there is some public documentation, you know, someone has done. It's obviously down to the people writing the CV. You, you can only go on what you read or, you know, what's in the cover letter or however they've managed to put themselves forward for something. But if you see those items, you see an inkling of that in there, then the next phases of the interview process are super important. I think I'm ready to take this chat in a slightly different direction. You've been involved in hiring many people over the years, and I think that's a really great perspective to have, especially for newer programmers who perhaps look at the interview process as being very daunting and intimidating. When you talk about judging someone based on their resume, can you talk us through that process a little bit? Like, what is the threshold Because as I understand it, as a hiring manager, you will have a bunch of resumes come across your desk and now it's time for you to filter them down. If a really great candidate has not done a good job highlighting themselves in their resume, they might miss out on the opportunity. So it's really important that your CV stands out. But beyond that, I would say, and more importantly, is the cover letter. You can tailor your CV for each application. and, And if you have time, I'd highly recommend you do that. But the purpose of a CV is to provide a history of your work and, you know, your side projects and things that you feel are relevant to help you get a job or, you know, provide information on who you are and, and what you care about. Because it's as much an individual finding the right role for them as it is the company finding the right person for the role. But I think something that a lot of people undervalue and don't spend enough time on is the cover letter. The value of the cover letter is you can address the recruiter directly and say, here are the key things from my experience that I think are relevant to specific points in your job description. For me, that's really how to stand out. A job's description will have a bunch of things around, you know, what you'll care about and why that's important to the company and the specific things that you'll do. You have a bunch of things in your CV about the things you care about and the specific things you've done. Use that cover letter to join the dots between those two things. For me, that would work in any role. It's not just about DevRel or or software development. I think that's a really important thing. And maybe you can also highlight your ambitions as well, because when you lack experience, sometimes it helps to highlight your potential. A traditional CV doesn't really have a section for that. But I've heard from various recruiters and they they are like external recruiters typically, or they're people who work in HR, but they spend something like an average of four to six seconds reviewing a resume. What's your estimate? Like how much attention would you imagine that you or a person in a similar position might give to a cover letter and resume? I would definitely give longer. I, th- I think I'm I'm a bit more of a detail-oriented person when it comes to that sort of thing. And I've, I've also got a natural inclination to want every single person that applies to be the right person for that job. I'd like to say it's because I'm an optimist. Sometimes that backfires in terms of, I mean, yes, hiring. There's an interesting thing, you know, like in life, you can either be positive and assume everyone is, you know, there to help you. 
negative and assume everyone's out to get you. I'm definitely a bit more towards that positive side. So for that reason, you know, I spend longer looking at these CVs, trying to find the points that ultimately I'm, I'm looking for in there. Obviously, the amount of time that I spend will reduce depending on the number of line items in front of me. If we're only getting one applicant a day, I'm going to spend a lot of time, you know, a minute reading through that CV, if not more. If there's 10 sitting in front of me, the time's going to reduce. Now you put it that way, it is kind of obvious. Like if you are to assume that the job you're applying for is in demand and you need to be competitive, you just have to assume that the person might not have a lot of time to review everything. So you have to make their job as easy as possible. Yeah. And and again, you know, you mentioned the cover letter and talking about ambitions, you're right. But again, saying why this company, why this role is that opportunity for you that you're looking for that desire to really want that role rather than just clicking on a link in LinkedIn and instantly applying for something. You know, I I think that that works very well for getting lots of applicants, but it doesn't mean you're actually spending any time and effort. And it it can be quite tricky. I understand the value of that as well, because say there's a role you're really struggling to hire for and someone has to make one click to apply or spend 20 minutes thinking about it, you know, filling in some forms or even longer then you might get that really good applicant who was only considering maybe leaving, who clicks apply, and it's a step, it's a positive step. But then the negative side of that is you'll get a lot of people that aren't that are just, I guess, more desperate for a role or aren't a great fit, but think, what the hell, I'll apply anyway. And then that's a bit of a waste of time for both them and, and you. Well, it's <laughs> less waste of time for them, more waste of time for you because you feel like you've got to reply to everybody and give them some feedback. Does that easy apply better never really work out for newer people to the industry probably not you're right i mean you know it the easy apply you've got to make sure your linkedin profile is because your linkedin profile is then your cv and and the amount of times i've seen people apply and they've got one line item that doesn't look relevant and i'm like well why did you even bother clicking (laughs) again you don't know the situation that these people are in so when it comes to creating job descriptions that can happen by yourself or in a bigger company in collaboration with the hr department In my experience, sometimes things get lost in translation and the most likely culprit is going to be something like the job asking for X years of experience. How do companies decide what X is? That's a good question. I think it's a bit like the, you know, requires a degree. I've always felt that it's more about that you can demonstrate your ability to do something. I don't think you know, the background of whether or not you could afford or had the opportunity to go to university or whether, you know, that was right for that individual. I think it was a bit towards your earlier questions around the amount of time you're spending on CVs. I think in the past, it was probably more around a filter. It was the need to filter out a mass of applicants. As we know, it means you don't build a diverse workforce through doing that. I think, again, it's about having a conversation with the HR department and them understanding that. Often the HR department may be the department that's telling you uh, you know, in, in definitely progressive HR departments, they'll be the ones, or recruitment departments, they'll be the ones telling you to keep the job spec broad and the requirements reasonably broad and to make sure that your wording in the job spec is inclusive to make sure that you're getting a diverse range of candidates. Funnily enough, I'm writing a job spec for a developer educator at the minute, and I just had that and I thought, well, let me pull it up. Okay, so I've gone with two plus years experience as a developer educator, developer advocate, or similar DevRel role, or a technical writer. So with our developer educator role, there's a lot of work on docs. And my feeling is, you know, we do need somebody. They don't have had to have had a DevRel role. Technical writer would be perfectly suited to this role as well. I guess, you know, if you were to make it even more generic, 
it's more about two plus years experience in an education role, really, with technical coding skills. So maybe I'll update that following our conversation, Alex. I see this a lot, man, like people who have been coding for a couple of years, uh, maybe they started young or maybe, maybe they've been doing it on the side. They see a job ad, which is like two years of professional experience. And they're like, eh, it's not professional experience, but I'm going to apply anyway. And then they might or might not find success. But on the flip side, there are people who've been doing the same, but they're like, mm, it asks for professional experience. I've, I've not been doing this professionally. Therefore, I'm unqualified. I'm not even going to, to try and apply. It, it's just weird, isn't it? Because every person has a different confidence threshold and uh, it might, in their case, lose them out on the job. But as an employer, you want the best candidate. It doesn't necessarily matter if they fit into a mold. If anything, you want someone a bit more dynamic. And so it's kind of part of the scale of writing a good job description that you uh, narrow it down enough that you're not getting totally random applications that are a waste of everybody's time, but broad enough that they're welcoming and uh, inclusive to everybody who might be a suitable candidate. Exactly, exactly. And and, and it can be hard as well, because you can do things that you think will be really helpful, such as don't see a role listed here that suits you, get in touch. We really, you know, really want good candidates. But then at that same time, you've got that confidence threshold. Do I have enough confidence to reach out and just say, hey, I'm looking for a job. Do you have anything for me? Because ultimately you need to sell yourself. It's really hard. And again, you're going to get just certain types of people probably that will click that link for a generic application. As you say, I think you just need to make it as general as possible, make sure the wording's very positive, make sure it's very inclusive, and make sure that you know there's something in there that says, look, even if you don't match 100% of these things, but you're super excited about potentially working with us, then get in touch anyway. We will read your cover letter. We will review your CV. To kind of close us out, I was wondering, and you can say no, of course, if you could tell us about a memorable candidate you interviewed it could be outstandingly bad, like maybe what you expected based on their cover letter did not come true, or, or it could be exceptionally good, like something they did that really made them stand out as someone you would like to hire and work with. Yeah, there's there's been a few occasions where, I mean, obviously I've, I've been involved in hiring quite a few people and I'll, I'll be entirely honest, I, I eventually was fortunate enough to hire people who were better at hiring than me. You know, that was really important. Uh, someone called Martin Davies, who I, I don't know if you'll know, but he uh, he's now at Orbit. Martin is, is an exceptional hirer in terms of you know, the process he puts in, the types of people he hires. I feel he's got a proven track record. So when we hired Martin, I was super excited because it meant that I had someone that was way better at me <laughs> than hiring. I think if I, if I think about one that stands out for me, I don't know whether it's a good or a bad, but it was a unique position for me to be in. I mean, obviously, when you're hiring for a developer relations team, certainly that's meant to represent communities. We tried to hire a PHP developer and a, a Python developer and a .NET developer and, a, and people from different locations in the world and people from different backgrounds. So actually, when you get a really good candidate in that somehow you know, it's actually very difficult because you're like, well, okay, I have to treat this person as I do everyone else, obviously. But sometimes your bias can go, take you the other way that you're like, okay, well, I know this person too well. And you know I've worked with them previously. And I just, you know, basically you need to remove yourself from it. It, it. That's the right solution. But you can only do that if the team is so big. And at the time we weren't so big, so I had to be involved. So actually this person had to try doubly hard, and I feel bad for it, to get the role because I had this opposite bias in my head around, I know this person's really good. I know they'd be really good at this job, but I feel we need to get more candidates in, which which we did. I don't know. It feels like I'm hiring a friend, which I'm obviously very cautious about because that shouldn't be the reason you hire somebody. 
but ultimately, you know, this person worked super hard, was by far the best candidate of everybody we had. And I, I could ask the rest of the team for their opinion and uh, and ultimately get a decision that, that we did hire that person. So it was just a very difficult situation for me to be in, really, to go through that process. His name's Aaron Bassett. He's now at New Relic. I'd worked with Aaron over previous years. I was friends with him. He applied for a job and it, it was really strange. It made it very difficult. And he knows, you know, he knows this because I was friends with him. I was like, oh, well, hiring someone that I know, someone that I know really well. But again, he was by far the best candidate for the role and, you know, worked very hard, as I said, probably more than others to do that. For me, it was just a very interesting situation to be in and probably a different story that these things can go the opposite way. Someone, you know, someone may not get hired, even though they're the best candidate because of this want to build a team in a way that isn't just, you know, obviously formed as part of your friends or is more diverse. I guess it's the story from the hirer's side rather than the, the candidate side. And that's exactly what we were hoping to hear. Phil Legator, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Alex. Thank you. That was Phil Legator, Head of Developer Relations at PostHog. You can find all of Phil's links, plus everything we mentioned in the show and a transcript for the whole episode in the show notes. Next week on the Scrimber podcast, I'm speaking with Ali Spittle about the science behind learning to code. We want to help you better remember the things that you're learning. Ali also shares her best advice for junior developers. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you see that in the feed as well as support the show. This episode was edited by Jan Osenovic, and I'm your host, Alex Booker. You can follow me on Twitter at Booker Codes, where I share highlights from the podcast and other news by Scrimber. See you next week.